We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. The title of the message today is God-Directed Partnership. God-Directed Partnership. So we've dealt with the God of all comfort. I think that was a five-part series uh, on the first 10 verses, really. And we went through verse 11. We're picking up with verse 11 again today because I believe there is a segue that Paul is doing in this. And there's several reasons why um, verse 11 comes. Of course, the inspiration of God. God wants us to know these things for, for specific reasons. And Paul is also writing for specific reasons uh, to the Corinthian believers. So we're going to dive into that. God-directed partnership. I ended this message last week, and I told you as we ended, I felt uh, like we were sliding verse 11 by giving it so little time. By the way, Pat, good to see you back. Uh, so we were uh, coming to this end of this section, and most Either in your Bibles or commentaries will make a break between verse 11 and verse 12. Um, we recognize the bre those breaks are man-made, uh, and there's continuity in thought and reasons of reflecting back to the previous verses and what's ahead for what we read in verse 11. So really, in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 1, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver us in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. He's, all this is a hope in Christ and a recognizing that God is the one that is delivering them from their present dangers. We've referenced in the past what those dangers might have been, the troubles that Paul might have faced. But in that, he's turning then in verse 11. So I'm going to read verse 10 again, and then into verse 11. Who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver us, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us, this trust in God. Ye also helping together by prayer for us that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. I want to tell you that this section of scripture, 2 Corinthians verse 11, not to the end of the chapter, but verse 11 towards the end, is not an easy passage to preach just because the flow is, uh, is, is not easy. The thoughts are sometimes a little hard to uh, get your minds around. So my goal is to try to help kind of unpack that as best I can, and we'll study the word here together. So what we see in verse 11 as we begin this is a helping together. There's a doctrine here that is magnified in the scriptures of this aspect of Christianity, especially as it's magnified with Paul and the Corinthian believers, that we are partners together. Uh, Paul uh, Barnes put it this way, the word rendered helping together means a cooperating and a aiding uh, uh, and assisting of one another. And so Paul was saying, ye also helping together by prayer for us, there was a specific avenue by which the Corinthian believers could participate in Paul's ministry as one who was journeying or traveling to share the word of God. And the specific avenue in which they could participate was a matter of prayer. And I think it's important as we begin this section of scripture to know several things that God works in us in a partnership so that we are connected one to another, uh, so that we know what's going on in each other's lives and so that we actively engage. Now, for that, I'm going to remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you want to go back a few pages, you can look at it. But it's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So there is a helping together, specifically noted, ye also helping together and by means of, by prayer for us. 
So this helping together is a spirit that is looking at other people's needs, looking at other people's struggles with an idea of being engaged. Now, one specific way of that engagement is prayer. But we recognize in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26, this, this um, doctrine and this partnership that we share together as family. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, and whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. There is this sense that we're connected to each other's lives, what's going on, and how to intercede for one another. So let me ask you this. Are there needs represented here in this room today? How many? Want to put a number on it? <laughs> Another way of saying it, how many issues do you have personally? Um, we talked about this a little bit in our Sunday school class today. All of us have issues. All of us have needs. And all of us have burdens or trials that we go through, things that we are enduring or suffering or handling. And the idea is that we actually care about each other. Now, this is important. Okay, so the reason it's important is because, I, okay, we took time to go over relationships uh, as, a, as a study in the church. I think that was a, I don't, I don't know how many weeks that was in a study. But in that study, we were noting the importance of being connected in a relationship to a church in a healthy way. And what I'm particularly emphasized there is it's possible to go through life broken. It's possible to go through life unhealthy spiritually and just accept that that's the way we're going to live. That we can be disconnected from the body of Christ, particularly your church, and live in an unhealthy way. It, it is true that people can navigate their life in a local church assembly. This is kind of a, a, uh, an unusual thought. That there will be those <coughs> who understand the doctrine of the local church and its importance and have a commitment to being faithful to church, but not have a commitment to being faithful to how God directs the feeling of the church and our partnership together. And it looks like this, power struggles. It's got to be my idea. It's got to be my way. Or I believe, th I believe this thing to be so and somebody else disagrees with me in church and I sit on my side, they sit on their side and, and live broken. Now, is that God's design? Obviously, the answer, no, not God's design. We are family. We are partners. And I'm going to say that again, I think, several times through here. But there is this partnership that we share that is a God-directed doctrine. And so God wants us to be mindful of each other, to love each other, to care about each other, and to be engaged with each other to the best of our abilities. Now, let me ask you, can you meet everybody's needs? I'm trying to think how I'll say this easily. 
Can you meet all of any one person's needs? Now, isn't that something? So how many do we have here today? For those online, I think we got like 3,000 here. <laughs> However many we have here. Back in the day when we were doing online service, we had eight here. But I should have said it then. We had 5,000 today. <laughs> um, in all the needs represented, can you meet them all? Isn't it big? So I'm going to use you as an illustration, Pat. Uh, Pat was home with COVID, and I was going through, you know, my own stuff. And then at some point I'm thinking, Pat's sick, his daughter's sick. Uh, I wonder how he's eating. I wonder how he's. I wonder how he's doing, and I think he said he's a. He he has gotten very very familiar with DoorDash, which is a thing, I guess. Um, my point is, I mean, there's a lot of need there, and there's a lot of need across the spectrum. That's just one, one, and that that's that went on for two three weeks, I guess, and and uh, it's, it's like that. In this room, there are a lot of needs re- manifested. And can you meet them all? No. But part of what we do when we come together, there is a continual focus directed of God where we're looking into each other's lives. What's going on in you? What's going on in you? And by the way, do we make that hard on each other? Sometimes. Sometimes we don't communicate what, what's going on. We don't really say. And, and, and I will often say that residually there can even be an inward kind of Resentment that nobody cares or nobody's engaged, all the while we don't tell. Do you think that ever happens? If you didn't nod yes, well, nod yes. Because <laughs> it does happen. And, and by the way, I don't mean, our church, our church is very kind to me. You guys give a lot of grace to me. But I, in history, there, you know, there are many pastors who would say somebody in the church was upset with them because they didn't show up for this or that. And, and what do you think the pastor's response was? Many times, what? Many times he did not know. I'll tell you what's even harder. Many times when somebody does know and you can't. That you can't be there for everything. That's hard, isn't it? But what is our statement here doctrinally? You can't do it all, but you can do what you can. And the goal isn't that you are expected to meet every person's needs. You can't, but you can do what you can. And, and I, I do believe this is true. Who's the best administrator of caring for one another? Pastor Phil. <laughs> Who's the best administrator? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the best administrator and should always be. But we communicate with each other and that communication actually then turns towards a communication with God. And it really is a partnership where you are specifically praying for each other. And now he goes on to say in verse 11 that you also helping together 
by prayer for us that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given to God, may be given by many on our behalf. So this idea of uh, that for the gift bestowed upon us, this, this gift bestowed, what is that? Was well, actually a twofold but united bestowing of a gift. Specifically, he's actually addressing two things. One, for the deliverance that he had, or is reflecting in verse 10, but also for the prayer that worked in and through and with that deliverance. So the two are reflected, but as one for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many, by the means of many persons. What's that mean? Many people were praying. Many people were holding each other before the Lord. Now, I don't know what prayer looks like for you when you pray for each other. And I don't pretend that the way I pray is the standard by which you pray. And I don't pretend that you need to do it exactly like it. I'm not even going to commend the way that I do it to you. I'm not doing that. I am saying that some people, when they pray for others, they might pray for 30 minutes for an individual. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know what others do. But I can tell you what I try to do, and I would say the Holy Spirit motivates it, not just in me, but in all of his children, that when God brings someone to your mind, he will implore you to pray for them. And many times my prayer isn't that long. And it isn't because you're not important. I just know that I pray for the needs that I know as God brings you to mind and makes me aware. Now, how many prayer requests do you have about your life? Do you have a few? In other words, do you have a few needs in your life for God to intervene and help you? So my point is, you begin to understand why God tells us to pray without ceasing. Because even in this room right here, there's no way you could pray for everybody's need even in a week's time and get them all. But you can pray as God brings each other to mind and as he makes you aware. And in doing so, we are acting as a family who loves and cares for each other. So what I'm saying is that we are a God-directed partnership that in this body, there should, I hope you hear this, there should never be a spirit of division that would in, initiate a lack of praying for each other. It's really hard to pray for people that you're not in love with, that you don't care about. Your mind typically seeks to avoid them. Or maybe for some, um, it's a struggle not to pray the imprecatory prayer of God's judgment. <laughs> Lord, deal with them. This isn't what he's talking about. He's talking about a prayer of love for each other. And that's the spirit that we have to have. There really needs to be cultivated in us this family participation where we really do care about each other and we may not know every struggle that people are dealing with, but we 
know enough to pray for or seek enough knowledge to pray for as those people come to mind. And by the way, it's everybody. It's from the children in the ministry, the youngest, to the oldest. We all need this family participation in prayer. The result of which, that thanks may be given by many on our behalf. And I am going to magnify again something I said last week, and that is, when you know a request and are taking it to God in prayer, when it's magnified itself enough in your life to pray about it, you now are looking and able to see when God moves. Does that make sense? So when God makes us aware enough to pray, you all of a sudden start really looking for God to engage and God to intervene and God to do, and the result of which as many praises and thanksgivings are given. And it is God's design. So the doctrine in verse 11 is, uh, even though I'm coming back over this from last week, is that we help each other, specifically by praying. And in the course of prayer, we're giving thanks as well. And we're coming back to verses 10 and 11 where the sense of these verses is that we are trusting a God who will help us. And in that process, we are family. Now, there is a transition that does happen as we come into verse 12. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you words. So you're going to hear Paul continue to magnify his relationship with the Corinthian believers. And this is important. So one of the problems that we have both with Christianity and in the world at large is dehumanizing people or by categorizing people as either in my group or not my group or someone that I choose to associate with or not. And that can happen within the body and it does certainly happen in the world. Matter of fact, the world is crazy with this right now. Just put a label on somebody and you can hate them with the label without knowing the person. Matter of fact, I'm gonna say in the whole Rittenhouse thing, the whole written, uh, it's Kyle Rittenhouse, right? And the whole Kyle Rittenhouse, they're, they're, the world is full of opinion and what drives me nuts. And by the way, I, I, don't, I, I have prayed for this young man. I have prayed that justice would prevail. I have prayed for God's leading. And that doesn't mean that everything that happens with Kyle that I, 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 I see wisdom in, but I would say praying for God's direction and help in this young man's life. And I wouldn't be surprised in our country with, uh, that justice would not prevail. And there are opinions today on both sides of that. But you know, there, even our president has taken to calling this young man a white supremacist. And, and I listen, why I would ever do this, I don't know, but I read a tweet because I clicked on an article that said, what is the left's reaction to? And so I, so I read a statement from the governor of, California, whose name I'm glad not to remember right now. <laughs> don't, say, don't say it in this place. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. 
But, but you know, his statement, these statements were statements that weren't based on law, weren't based on, they were, they were just inciting. Why? Because people want to put a label on somebody. Once I got a label on you, I don't have to see you as a person. I can just hate you because you've got that label. Now, it's one thing for the world to do that. It's another thing for us. And the reason I say just kidding about the governor of California is, is what should our spirit be towards him, towards our president, towards anybody on this planet? We need to love these people. We need to love these people and pray for them. Right? Yeah, they need Jesus, amen, and we need Jesus, right? If it wasn't for Jesus, where would you be? What would your mind be like? Fair? But once we put a label on somebody and assign, I don't like, a pastor said this to me, I don't like it. I think it's unfortunately true. He said, something you need to know about in your ministry, Jeff, as you began as a young man, I was an intern pastor at the time, and uh, he said, Jeff, you don't have to be wrong or do wrong. You just have to be perceived as doing wrong. Now, there's a problem that I have. I believe that there's a lot of truth in that. And there's some self-inflicting perceptions that we can give people by how we do things. But what I don't like about that is that just because someone perceives something to be so does not make it so. And too often we assign motives to people that they will not own. We assign this black-hearted evil even to other brothers and sisters that they would not own. We are family. It's important to know that we are family and to act as family. And now Paul is having to commend himself to the Corinthians Using language, I'm going to tell you that he's not comfortable with because in other passages, uh, he, he, he says this pretty clearly, um, that his boasting is vain. But he is trying to make sure that he's confronting false views about himself that were likely given by false teachers and people that were jockeying for position in the church, and then false accusations, which you're going to see as we bear out in this passage. So he starts by saying, our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience. So there's a commending of himself, and he says that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly or can I say it this way, more importantly to you, the believers in Corinth. So simplicity, perhaps what Paul had in mind was the not being puffed up with knowledge or communication in a way that gave someone the sense of being puffed up as the false teachers would have done. Now, why do I say that? There are other passages that give this sense. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 
I'm going to read again, for our rejoicing is this, a testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, and not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly towards you. Now, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 18 and 19. Now, some are puffed up as though I would not come to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord will and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will you? Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? So in 1 Corinthians, we read some of the jockeying of accusation that is going to come out in this passage that specifically had to do with Paul's travel. But in this, he is, he is admonishing against this idea of those who would puff themselves up. And by the way, would it be easy to assign to someone the label of they are proud? Is that easy to do? Can be. And would it be easy to apply to someone's label they are self-centered? They really only care about them. Now here's the difficulty. Once you look at somebody through a lens, unless God intervenes, you can always look at them through that lens. And isn't it true that we need some, we many times need the glasses of Jesus Christ to break through our, our foggy vision or our unclear vision or our wrong vision? I want to tell you, listen, So much of Christian misbehavior in relationship is an unwillingness to become obedient to Christ and look at other people the way Jesus wants us to. Instead, we draw our lines. We say, well, they're not this and they're not that. And we accuse and hold label and hold label and hold label against people and live with that label as being reality where God says, how about looking through this lens? Love people. Love people. It's not that complicated, is it? What's stark to me is that <laughs> we're just this way. We're, we're just this way in our fallen, our fallen state. It is so easy to see someone else's fault and not my own. In pastoral life, listening to someone tell me about another person with which they have a problem. And, and I say, so what would, you, what would you like to see in them? And, and the statement comes back, they just need, what do you think they say? They just need Jesus. And then they go on to say, if they, if they would just be obedient to Jesus, they'd be all right. Now, that's a good statement, right? But what's the problem with the statement? It's in the very next breath, I hear reasons why they won't be obedient to Jesus. And so we hold other people to a standard that we won't own. I love Jesus, ignore what I'm doing, I love Jesus. 
Well, are you going to be obedient to Jesus? Well, stop asking me. I, I love Jesus. I love him. Don't just accept that. <laughs> and I know that there's a sentiment of our heart that says, yes, we love the Lord. But there's reality that says sometimes in our disposition towards others, the reality of our love for one another isn't there. And God didn't call us just to love each other in theory. He called us to love each other in reality. And Paul's going to have to address that. And because of that, in these verses, he, he begins to say, look, we've come to you in sincerity or in simplicity and in sincerity and not with fleshly wisdom. Colossians 2.18, I'm going to read for you under this idea of simplicity. Let no man beguile you of reward in a voluntary humility and a worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, and it goes on to say, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. And someone commending themselves to you by how smart they can sound. I've warned our church about this. Be careful of somebody who's trying to sell you secrets of the Bible that you've never seen. If you've never seen them, what's the statement? If you've never seen it, it's probably not there. See, uh, you know, I just saved you $19.99. You've got your Bible, praise God. Use your Bible. Be careful about these people who whose knowledge puffs them up. In the same respect, God has called us to give an answer for what we believe. And in the spirit of what? Meekness. And I would say also in the spirit of love. So that is true for how we have discourse with the world but it's true with how we have discourse in this place. So never let us, let the seeds of discord or seeds of, of unrest happen in our hearts for one believer towards another. We have to, at the end of the day, end of the day look like the love of Christ. And that doesn't mean condoning sin. It doesn't mean excusing sin, but it means living in the love of Christ. And who helps you do that? The word of God and the Holy Spirit. And God help us to do that. That's what Paul is speaking to here. And he says, with godly sincerity. In other words, he's saying, I have lived my life amongst you believers with a simple message. My message is not hard to understand. And with a godly sincerity, meaning that I have had pure motives behind how I have served among you. And he says, not with fleshly wisdom. In other words, I'm not navigating all of this because I'm smarter than everybody else in the room. I'm not trying to wing my way through this uh, by finding a good path or plan. And I, forgive me for this if it sounds... If it, I don't think it's going to sound self-serving, so I hope you'll give grace to the illustration. Lillian, I'm going to, you and I have talked about this. And this, you're probably one of the greatest testaments of, uh, in your question to me one time that magnifies, magnifies the wisdom of God and how he's designed the church. So I happened to be walking by a table 
where there were several seniors after a food fellowship one Sunday. And Lillian, just as an expression of gratitude, said, Pastor Jeff, I just want to take a moment. And again, there were other seniors there. And she said, I want to just thank God for how, uh, and she was direct about it. She said, how you've uh, organized or designed the church in, in our finances. And she said, and she went, and a paraphrase, but she went on to say, I don't know how you came to that, but just praise God for how it's all laid out. And, and my answer was very clear and very direct. And first of all, praise God. But secondly, I didn't do it. Nothing that happens here is Jeff's bright idea. Matter of fact, to, be, give, to give clarity to the answer I gave to Lillian, I said, really, and I took a moment to say, this is how we do things. We pray about things together. We discuss them as a church family together. We look for the mind of Christ together. And God uses his people, surrender to his spirit, to give wisdom and direction to what we do. So it's nobody's bright idea. It's God. Amen? I mean, I, I love that answer because it's true. God uses his people, led by his spirit, to direct what he does in ministry. That's what family does. That's what family does. We work together. But we don't do it because, because we're so smart. Matter of fact, what's, what's amazing to this, if you were to talk to people about the building design, people that were here back in the day, I mean, even, even the way paint is in one room or one section of the building versus another, even about uh, the design of, uh, of the space. Is it a perfect building? No, because it's a building. But we absolutely saw God's hand that navigated us in decisions as we were trying to follow the Lord's direction and be in communication with one another and praying. But that's what family does. So Paul is having to commend and remind the Corinthians this. The message is simple. I've come to you in sincerity. There's no, there's no ulterior motive of impure motive. I love the Lord and love you. And it's really that simple. And then not with fleshly wisdom. I'm not trying to order my life by how smart I am. Now, he's going to underscore that in verse 13. But before I do, I want to take a moment here. I said this in my Sunday school class today as well. Um, have you lived long enough to where you know that God's plan is better than yours? Have you? Have you ever come to a problem that manifested itself in your life and... You did all the running and tizzy work of finding an answer and you made it worse. There is a peace that comes to the life of the believer when you say, look, I don't want to even trust my wisdom to navigate this world. I need God's help. I need him to give me clarity I need to give him to give me wisdom on what to do. I want him to direct my steps. I want him to guide in my life. And, and that's going to be my fundamental. So verse 13, he says, continuing about his discourse with them, 
He says, for we write none other things unto you than what you read or acknowledge, and I trust you shall acknowledge even to the end. Now, I struggle over how do I explain this verse, and I felt like uh, one commentary particularly did this well. It says, said it this way. The meaning here is that there is no double meaning in what you have heard in our teaching and doctrine. In other words, you don't have to read between the lines for a secret meaning. It's been simple. It's been clear. And what he's saying here, at least I believe, is that there are others that are saying, hey, Paul said this, but what he really meant was this. And then they were calling into question his love for them, and it's going to bear itself out in his journeyings. So the idea is that we have served among you in simplicity and in sincerity and godly sincerity and not in fleshly wisdom. And for a moment, take your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll understand that there is a humility that is saying, look, I'm not smart enough to own the accusations of people's accused design of why I've done what I've done. In other words, those that are saying, look, he really meant this, he's really doing this, he's really got an ulterior motive, he's really trying to use you, and he's navigating his his way through life just in a self-serving kind of way to get what he wants out of you. That seems to be the accusation that those who were kind of jostling for power in the Corinthian church were making against Paul. But Paul is going to magnify the simple and the humble, not for magnifying people, but for magnifying the power of God. So in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26, we read, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who are of God, uh, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him what? Let him glory in the Lord. Amen? You know, I, I will say this about, about church life. One of the most refreshing things that we can ever do is not to come hear some speaker, but to see Christ. Not to hear what some man has to say, but to hear the word of God and magnify Jesus. And guess what Paul's really trying to do? With the Corinthian believers, he's trying to get their eyes continually off of the distraction of labels, perceived notions and issues, and he's continually trying to get people's mind on Jesus. What does Jesus want me to do? How does Jesus want me to navigate? I believe this ministry will always do well when we accept these doctrinal platforms and always raise Jesus as being supreme. To say it differently, let's all have our eyes on Christ.
That's always a beautiful thing. And it always gets ugly when our minds get off of Christ. So Paul is having to make this argument with the Corinthian believers. He's trying to say, look, don't believe these false motives. Don't believe these accusations of those who are being dissenters and contrary. In verse 13, back in 2 Corinthians 1, for we write none other things unto you than what you read. In other words, you have the letters, you have the scriptures that we've given you. They're clear about our motives, our intent. Let them stand on what they say. And don't read into things false motives or assign labels under your perceptions that aren't substantiated in the truth. So then we come to verse 14. And in verse 14, there's a futuristic look. As also you have acknowledged us in part, he says, there's been times in your history where you have acknowledged and understood our demeanor, our deportment with you, how we've lived our lives among you, how that we are with you, how we love you. You've acknowledged that in part, that we are your rejoicing. You've rejoiced with us in the ministry that we've had and in the ministry that we've had with you. But he also says, this is not a hierarchy. He says, even as ye also are ours in the day of Jesus Christ, in the day of the Lord Jesus. There is this rejoicing in the partnership that we share one towards another in Christ. We are family. There is a bond in our fellowship. We rejoice in each other because we are the family of God together. And he says, and we, in this verse 14, and there's coming a day where we are going to be with him together. We are family. Give thanks for each other. Can you do that? Give thanks for each other. Now, I'm going to be real here. Has it ever been difficult? Have you ever had people in your life where you say, Lord, if you're telling me to give thanks, okay. Thank you that I didn't have to see him that much. <laughs> Lord, thank you for that time we got to say goodbye. Is that the kind of thanks? No. So what I'm saying is in all of us, there needs to be this check in our spirit. When, if there's something or someone in our lives that we're having difficulty with, we can't go to this place of living in a dysfunctional Christianity that says, I don't need to love that person. By the way, what kind of love are we supposed to have with each other? How would you say it? How would you say it? Wouldn't the standard be the love that Christ gave to us? Is that fair? Is it? So that kind of love is at least self-sacrificing. It's at least putting others before ourselves. It's at least being willing to be used. But for his glory. It's at least being willing not to be recognized. 
I remember one time <laughs> I was working Walmart third shift and I, I specifically got hired to take over in an interim fashion for a guy who had been there working for years, but it had a, a, some, either a heart attack or a stroke or something like that. And in his, in the time that I was working there, I had very specific instructions by my employer to, at some point when this gentleman started coming back, to help him gradually be able to take over some of the responsibilities that he had before and get eased back into doing his job. And specifically, the instructions were, don't do everything for him. And they were really trusting my judgment to say, you know, um, help him to take on some tasks, don't do it all for him. Well, so I did that, and I, I tried to do it in the way that the employer had given me. And so I, whether it was cleaning the floors with machines or whatever it was, I, I would do the lion's share of it and give a little to the guy that was coming back, sensitive to the fact that you don't want to wear him out and all those kinds of things. In very short order, this guy coming back, whose job I was working along with him, he initially coming back already had the mindset, who's this upstart in my job? Then it went further, this guy's a lazy good for nothing because he's making me do this. And no matter what I could say or do, I could, not, I could not perform to a way that would please this man because he was looking at me through a lens. So what am I to do? It's very simple. Love God, love him, and serve even if it means being misunderstood. It just can't come back to, well, they don't like me, I don't like them, and But we can act that way. God calls us as his people not to do that, and especially in this place. Why do I say that? I don't say it because there's a problem here. I say it because Paul is dealing with believers. This is the problem. Now, I'm going to do like I did last week and try to cover too much at the end, but here we go. There's, I, I've given the title to the message, God Directed Partnership. There is this partnership, but there's also in the title, God Directed Partnership. And what we're going to see is a direction of God in plans. And this became the incitement of those that were trying to cause division in the church. So there was a change of plans and conflict that came as a result. Verse 15. And in this confidence, in other words, that we were loving each other, we're joint heirs together, we're going to be with Christ together, we um, have rejoicing on each other's part. In this confidence, I was minded to come unto you before that she might have a second benefit. A second benefit is the idea of coming to rejoice with them again, coming to be a blessing to them again. Verse 16, to pass by you into Macedonia and to come again out of Macedonia unto you and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. In other words, again, to emphasize and to reestablish this partnership together, 
Uh, as a quick note, if you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 through 7, there is a, an acknowledgement of how God does change plans. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 through 7. Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia, 1 Corinthians 16, 6. And it may be that I will, I will abide, yea, and winter with you, that she may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. For I will not see you now by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you, and here's the, the phrase, if the Lord permit. Now take your Bibles back to 2 Corinthians 1. There is again this, this knowledge that God does direct in plans, God changes plans. But now there is an accusation, it would seem, that Paul was really just ordering his life in a self-serving way, and it appears to be the indictment is he really doesn't love you because he said he was going to come to you again, and he didn't. So now you have accusations of, I would surmise, accusations of, he doesn't love you, he broke his word, he's a liar, he's whatever. Verse 17, when I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness? Or the things that I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? That with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay. Now what is that phrase? This yea, yea, and nay, nay. In other words, I can say yea to you about an issue, and then nay to you about an issue, whatever suits me best. I become a chameleon where you don't really know where I stand because I can say one thing to you and another thing to another person and be deceptive or self-serving with the answers that I give. That seems to be the indictment. Read the verse again. When I therefore was thus minded, that I used lightness. That I just kind of wing it. Was I frivolous in my, in my plans, just doing what suits me? Or the things that I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? And what's best for me? That with me there should be yay, yay, and nay, nay. Was Paul not sincere? As he's already argued in the previous verses. Was he truly self-serving and not directed by God in his plans? And with this, we come to the end of our passage by alluding to James 4. So if you'll take your Bibles there, we'll make the application from James. Before I do, let me ask you, has God ever changed your plans? <coughs> you okay with that when God changes your plans? Well, it depends, right? It depends on where you are in the journey of your plans. Let me say it differently. Have you lived long enough to thank God for not giving you what you thought you wanted? If I only had... And God said, no. Now, the reason I say it depends on your journey, how do you react when God tells you no initially? Are you a pleasant child? 
Or do you do a little kicking and screaming? Or you, do you do a little spiritual grumpy at God? Now, God, you know I wanted that. And you, God, you know that'd be a blessing to me. And don't you want to bless your children? James 4, 13 through 15. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Read verse 14 and 15 out loud with me. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Now, there's a lot of application here. There's a tangible application that says, look, all of us have to understand that there's a God who directs in your life. Amen? Are you at peace with that? Now, can you mess things up? Well, I'm going to say, yeah. I'm going to say, yeah. But I'm going to tell you about the bigness of God. He's even able to use your messes. There is a peace that comes knowing, in knowing that there's a God who's directing our lives and a God who's navigating us through this world. Do we need wisdom? Yeah. I've got some questions in my life right now with some things that are, Kids are kind of considering, it's like, what's the best way? I don't know. It's not like you switch off your brain. But if you understand what I mean, you better not be depending wholly on your brain. You're not smart enough. I know that's radical to say. You're not smart enough to get through this life in your wisdom. And woe to you if that's what you're trying because you know what man's wisdom looks like? Look at the world around you. Look at the crazy of who we are. I'm having to stock up on toilet paper again. <laughs> Buy water bottles. I'm not kidding you. I came home with another thing of toilet paper and water bottles. And one of my kids says to me, what are you doing, Dad? <laughs> why, are you, why do you keep buying this water? What are you doing that for? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Seemed like a good thing to me. <laughs> we need wisdom, right? We need mo wisdom moving forward. We need God's help. Amen? I do. I need God's help. Like, I am just not smart enough. Now, I don't, I don't pretend to want to be stupid about life. But do you understand what I mean when I say, uh, a good way to say it. I know what I want to say, but I don't think it'll be accepted well. I'd rather be stupid trusting God than smart myself. I don't know if I <laughs> say it right. He just says it's okay to be stupid.
We need wisdom. And the place we find wisdom is in the fear of God, surrendering to him and thanking him that he has a plan. And he does. He does. And in the process, Paul's argument here is this. <laughs> I'm, I'm still in the world every day of Pastor Phil and I talk. He asked me yesterday, he was over yesterday, he said, you or me? You or me? Preaching today. And I always go, maybe me. He said, you. <laughs> okay. All right. After today, I'm going to be tired. You know what's going to get me back here? Pie. <laughs> Who said that over there? Wave your hand. Yeah, you know. You guys know. Am I led according to the flesh? Amen. Amen. See, I'm not nearly as noble as Paul. <laughs> I'm telling you right now. <laughs> All right, there'll be praises for pie. <laughs> no, I, listen, what a sweet thing to come to this place today. You're a messed up individual. And yet there's God who loves you and is guiding in your messed up life. I'm thankful for it. God used my messed up life to bring me to himself. And sometimes family members look at, them, look at their journey in that messed up life and they're very apologetic of this and that. Like, don't sweat it. Look, it's okay. God, God's used these things to draw me to himself. Thank the Lord for navigating in my life to bring me to Christ. I am so thankful I know Jesus. I am so thankful the difference that he's made in my life today, in my past, and what he's got for me in my future. And by the way, in that it doesn't mean that I've navigated since the day I got saved in a way that was all glorifying to God. No. But he's never stopped loving me. He's never stopped helping me. He's never stopped caring about me. And I say all these things about me to tell you that that's true for you. God loves you immensely. He's got a plan for your life. Don't sweat it. Don't sweat it. He'll take you where you need to be. He'll guide you where you need to be. He'll work your life. And, and here's something else to know specifically related to this passage. Don't sweat what everybody else thinks. What are they going to think? Well, there's a part of me that wants to say, who cares? But there's another part that says, look, just you put your head on your pillow at night, surrender to God, and let him sort out the details. He's got you. He sees your tomorrow as clearly as he sees your today. Now, Paul's mind in this God-directed partnership is that God does direct in our plans and you better either come to the place of being good with that or prepare yourself to live in a continual state of frustration. 
So how about we, this morning, choose to trust?